I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, Brian here, and this is episode number 15 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, I made a quick check of uh, emails and nothing there, so I will just say before I get into this information-packed episode that if you want to get a hold of me, you can drop me an email at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I also have a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. I also have uh, social media up and running. That is uh, Facebook, just search Confessions of an Arcade Addict. Twitter is uh, at arcadeaddict underscore B. Instagram is at arcadeaddictbrian. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So there are various ways to get a hold of the show. And without any further ado, let's get right into it because I've got a lot to talk about here. So let's move on to Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Okay, this is for the uh, Fashion Square Mall, Florida Mall arcades. Um, just to catch you up to speed, this is late fall, early winter, 1993. Um, after all of my adventures and misadventures in the Melbourne Palm Bay area, uh, I moved in with my roommate. Uh, well, that was on Thanksgiving Day, as a matter of fact, 1993, and that started a really good friendship between two of us. Um, once the situation settled down, I transferred jobs up to the supermarket that I was working in when I was in Melbourne. And once I started getting regular paychecks and paying my share of rent and bills, we started going on arcade runs. As I've said before, my ex-roommate was as much of a video game head as I was, probably more because she actually collected games. And we had uh, interests in uh, RPGs and, you know, a lot of different things, uh, anime, sci-fi, the whole nine. So, you know, we were well suited to each other in that way. So, yeah, we started going on arcade runs uh, once everything settled down. And two of the places we used to go quite a bit were the Florida Mall and Fashion Square Mall. They bo- both malls had arcades. Um, Fashion Square Mall is on Colonial Drive in the central area of Orlando, Florida. The Florida Mall is off of Orange Blossom Trail on the south side of Orlando. Um, only about, I'd want to say, four miles north of Kissimmee and about two miles east of uh, International Drive, or as I like to call it, Tourist Hell. Um, 
and I called it that because, yeah, a lot of tourists uh, come in and out of the place. Of course, Orlando's run more, were, back then it was almost chiefly run by tourism. So, you know, you had people from all over the world mixing and mingling down there. And it was pretty cool for the most part, but some days it wasn't so cool. Um, but getting back to the topic at hand, um, both arcades were typical uh, of mall arcades in that the spaces weren't huge. Fashion Square Mall was bigger than Florida Mall, just in a square footage sense. And because of that, they had more games and a better selection. Um, by this time, uh, NBA Jam Tournament Edition had come out, and the I think the only arcade close to me that had it was the Florida Mall. Um, so I would always play that there. Um, as I said, Fashion Square had a better selection of games, and they would get newer games more consistently. Although it seemed to me that the Florida Mall Arcade was more content to rely upon uh, the tourists and the regular, you know, the people go doing their shopping, coming in and playing uh, the play, the games they have. They didn't get too many new games. Um, so, you know, both malls were, you know, both arcades were decent, but yeah, if I had a, a preference, uh, Fashion Square had Florida Mall beat. Um, as I said, both malls figured prominently in our arcade runs, but for different reasons. Um, my roommate had a job in a mom-and-pop video game store, which was in a little shopping center that was more or less, less attached to the Florida Mall. And uh, in 1995, I started working at the Best Buy, which is across the street. And so sometimes after I would you know, work and get off, you know, get off work, I'd go over to the Florida Mall arcade and play a few games or... I go to the game store and hang out with my roommate until she got off, and then we both go home. Um, when we had coinciding days off, the Fashion Square Mall more figured into our plans more like that. Um, usually on those days, we'd get up around 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we'd go over to Enterprise 1701, which was a, a famous um, comic book slash anime slash role-playing game store in Orlando, Florida, which was only about, I want to say, half a mile away from uh, the floor, no, excuse me, the Fashion Square Mall. And so after we get done going through there, getting comic books, getting uh, RPG stuff, um, we would go over to the Fashion Square Mall and, you know, go over there, play games uh, for a couple of hours and then we would cap it off by going to China Jade, which was attached to the Fashion Square Mall. And it was a uh, Chinese restaurant which had Mongolian barbecue. And I say, still say to this day, that's the best Mongolian barbecue I've ever had in my life. Uh, we would go there and just stuff our faces. It was ridiculous. Um, and then after that, we'd go home and uh, play more games or play some... Uh, uh, Marvel superheroes, uh, RPG, or play D and D, you know, and stuff like that. Those days were just fantastic. We loved it, but um, both malls ended up closing. I want to say nineteen ninety seven, maybe nineteen ninety eight, somewhere around there. Uh, both arcades, I mean. Um, although I think the arcade in the uh, Fashion Square Mall came back, I think, for like a year, but the business 
wasn't doing so hot. I mean, by this time, we're talking like 2000, 2001. I mean, uh, the Sony PlayStation 2 came out in 2001. So, you know, a lot of people weren't going to arcades. I mean, uh, the arcade dark ages, as I like to call them, are from like, I want to say like 1995 or 1996, uh, all the way up to, I'd probably say, when they started making comebacks in the middle 2000s. Um, but yeah, I mean, both of these malls, like I said, figured prominently in, you know, re rejuvenating my love for arcades. And, you know, I have fond memories of both. Um, I went down, to, last time I was in Orlando was 2010, um, when uh, I was doing my test driving job and they asked me to take a vehicle from, uh, Michigan to, um, Fort Myers, Florida. And, you know, that's like a two-day trip, you know, if you're not hurrying. And I was ahead of schedule on the second day, so I decided to make a side trip to Orlando. And I just messed around there for a little while. Just to kind of, you know, reminisce and everything like that. I met a couple of friends while I was down there. I had a, had a pretty good time before I had to get on the road and, you know, haul, haul my butt down to Fort Myers, which was another... Oh, goodness, what, four-hour drive or so? But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would just do... I just went to Orlando sort of to reminisce about all that stuff. So, yeah, uh, that's the rundown on these two arcades. I will be doing a review of both of these arcades in future episodes, so stay tuned. Um, if you lived in the Orlando area and you have memories of these arcades... Get a hold of me. I want to know what you know. I want to hear your stories. Um, and that way we can, you know, commiserate and share a little bit. Brian at gmail.com Okay, moving on from there, we will go to Time for Some Strategy. Time for some strategy. Super Basketball. This game, I'm trying to remember. The first time I played Super Basketball, I think Bolarama in my hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut, they got it. And it was, I think, summer of 1984 when this when they got this game. I don't know the exact date when it was released, but I know it was in 84. Um I learned how to play it from several people and I got pretty good at it. I mean, I didn't really get good at it until I went to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and I found it in an arcade, or not an arcade, in a uh, grocery store in the neighborhood where I was staying. That's when I pretty much mastered the game. Um, so, yeah, in this segment, Time for Some Strategy, this is more or less my uh, all of my knowledge of this game. Um, I was going to try to, I was going to read a Wikipedia description of this game, but Wikipedia doesn't have one, and I'm shocked, because they have a, uh, entry for the sequel to this game, Double Dribble. 
So I will just do this as best I can. I did these notes and I hope I did well with them. So here we go. Um, Super Basketball is a game released by Konami in 1984. You control a basketball team that is trying to make a comeback against their opposing team within a certain amount of time. You have to beat their scores, and as you progress through the game, the deficit gets bigger, and the defenses get harder, and it gets more difficult for you to get the ball down court. Um, so uh, the control layout is an eight-way joystick and three buttons. One button is to dribble the ball, one is to pass it, and one is to shoot it. Um, the, uh, like I said, the object of the game is to defeat the opposing teams before the time on the game clock runs out. As you progress in the game, the deficit your team is down by to the team you have to beat gets larger and larger, and the defenses get harder to score upon. Um, let's see. Uh, when you're dribbling, you have to repeatedly hit the dribble button, or as in modern uh, vernacular, button match the dribble button to make your player move around with the ball. You get 10 points for every dribble that you make with your, where your player moves, moves forward. Uh, shooting. Every time you make a shot, you score points, and we'll add two or three points to, to the score, towards the score you need to beat the team you're facing, and what's more important, it puts time back on the clock. If you make a regular jump shot, it puts five seconds back on the clock. If you make a dunk, it puts six seconds back on the clock. The jump shots give you a certain uh, score, uh, and your the dunks actually score more points than the uh, shoot than the regular jump shots. Uh, to explain, there is the score that you need to that you need to achieve to beat the team you're facing, but you also have a an uh, an accumulative score. You're actually scoring points while you're doing all of these things. Um, you get points when you dribble the ball. You get points when you successfully make a pass. You make you get points for uh, the shots you make, whether it's jump shots, dunks, or free throws. It's a certain amount of points. Um, before I wrote down these notes, I played a game of Super Basketball, and I only got maybe halfway through the game. So I got to the United States national team before I finally lost. Um, so... As I've said, uh, with passing, like it said, like I said, successful passes gives points to your your cumulative score. The camera, when you take possession of the ball, the camera will pan from right to left from the the basket that you are trying to dribble toward, dribble and pass towards in order to shoot at, and it will pan to the left all the way to where your team is taking the ball out of bounds. Now. The, the thing you can see is that if your teammates have passing lanes, which means from where you take the ball out of bounds, you inbound the ball to a player, and if a teammate is open further down the court, you can pass the ball immediately down to him, and that way you've traversed a great deal of distance and gotten closer to the basket. Now, once you do that, then you have to dribble the ball and try to get around the defense in order to attempt to score. Okay, to get the dunk shot, you basically have to run into the lane, and there are two. There are four lines demarcating the lane. The second line from the top is the one your player has to be, at the very least, close to, if not right on. As you're dribbling towards the basket, 
Then you press and hold the shoot button, your player jumps in the air with the ball, and once your player is at the rim, you release the button, and your player dunks the basketball. As I said, dunks are more favorable because you score more points, and you get more time back on the clock. Um, sometimes when you go up for a shot, whether it's a jump shot or a dunk, the defender will try to will jump into you and actually foul you. From there, you shoot two free throws, just like in a real basketball game. The free throws are about angle and timing. Once you get fouled, then everybody goes to each sides of the, the lane, you know, and your players at the free throw line dribbling the basketball. On the basket, there is a moving target that's moving up and down over where the basket where the basket is. Now the trick to doing this is you have to press and hold the shoot button and you then there's a little counter that shows the angle of the shot. And then while you're doing that, you have to make sure when you release the ball that the target is over the basket. So the trick is getting the right angle on the shot, which is between 40 and 49 degrees. Um, and of course, when you release the tar when you release the ball and the target's over the basket, the ball will go in. You'll get three seconds on the clock. And I think, what, 2,000 points or something like that. Um, if you hit the shot at the perfect angle, which is 45 degrees... And that's something that the game manufacturer Konami used a lot, used for a lot of their sports games. It's really, really funny to me. Um, but if you hit it at 45 seconds with the target over the basket, you get five seconds back on the clock. As you progress in the game, the target's moving faster and faster, which means you have to time it better and better. Um, and let's see, so you score enough points to beat the team and then there's a bonus score at the end of the stage which is one second times 1000 points times the level you're at for example beating the junior high school team which is the first team you face you get one second times 1000 points times you know one second times 1000 points so if you beat them with 40 seconds on the clock you get 40,000 points the next team the high school team you get 2,000 points per second left. So if you beat them with 40, 40 seconds on the clock, you get 80,000 points, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, if you're really good at the game, once you get all the way towards the world champions, which is like, I want to say it's like, oh goodness, I want to say it's at least 10,000 points per second. There was a time where I was playing this game where I beat that team handily and i had well over a minute left on the clock i think i got like six hundred fifty thousand points or something ridiculous like ridiculous like that okay so after you do that you go on to the next team now every second team you defeat you have a challenging stage now the challenging stage you're basically sitting it's you're sitting at the free throw line and there's the target moving across the thing again this time all you have to do is keep hitting the shoot button and at first, the target moves slowly back and forth, and then it speeds up really, really quickly. And then you just keep hitting the button as fast as you can, and each basket you make at the end is it gives you a bonus of 1,000 points per each basket you, you uh, have sunk. So that means if you sink 40 baskets, you get a 40,000-point bonus, and so on and so on. So like I said, after every second team, you do that. Um, 
Now, as I said, um, the game gets progressively harder as you defeat the teams. You start with, let's see, uh, the junior high school team, then you move on to high school, then you move on to college, then you move on to university, then you move on to the Japanese national team, then the United States national team, then the Russian national team, and so on and so on and so on and so forth. Um, here's some notes that I took while I was uh, re-familiarizing myself with the game earlier this evening. Um, with the junior high school team, all the shots you take are two points. The defense is easy to get around. You just basically don't dribble in a straight line. You want to, as you're moving forward, you want to move a little bit up, a little bit down. And usually that's enough to get you around the defense to get yourself a shot or a dunk. Uh, the high school team, defense is a little bit tougher. Uh, the college team, uh, the, the uh, opposing players start jumping the passing lanes to steal the ball. So now you've got to really be mindful of how you're passing the ball. You have to make sure you have a clear line of sight from the player who has the ball to the player you're trying to, to pass it to. Um, how you do that is that while you're moving your player, you move the joystick up, you know, to, in the direction towards your, uh, towards your teammate and hit the pass button. And usually if you have a clear line of sight, the ball will go straight to them and then you control that player. But sometimes, and it starts with the college team, they will act like the the ball, you know, act like the ball is going to go to the teammate. Then they'll just move in front of the teammate and steal the ball. Now, uh, I should say, and I forgot, neglected to say it, uh, when you have your ball, the ball stolen from you, uh, the shot is blocked, the shot or the shot or the ball goes out of bounds for some reason, um, or if you uh, get called for uh, charging, which means you dri you're dribbling the ball and you just go right into the opposing player. You'll always get called for charging. And each one of those situations takes time off the clock. And as you said, the, the defenses get tougher, so now you got to work harder to get to the spaces where you need to be to, to shoot your shot or to get into the lane to, to attempt the dunk. So, yeah, it's all it's all happening at the same time. Um, the college team, like I said, the computer players start jumping the passing lanes to steal the ball. The Now they start playing zone defenses, which means they'll sit back and, like, arrange their players in a certain pattern around the basket, and you have to kind of break down the defense, meaning you have to get in between the computer players to get to open spaces or to get to the basket for a dunk. Um, Backcourt viol violations are now being called, which means if you are dribbling the ball down the court from the inbound and you cross the half-court line, you can't move back over it or pass back over it because it's turnover. Also, three-point shots are in effect, which means if you shoot a jump shot behind the three-point line, it goes in, you get three points instead of two. Uh, the university team. Defense starts getting, starts getting tougher. They'll jump with you when you take a shot, so the best thing to do is to try to maneuver around them and, get to, and try to get to the basket to go for dunks, because they can't block dunks. One player on your team has white hair, and I like to call him Magic Johnson. And that the reason why I call him that is because when he has the ball and he passes it, 
it the he throws it with velocity and it will get to the get to your teammate really really fast so sometimes he'll even like knock a defender down with his passing it's really funny to watch but when you're playing the university team get the ball to him try to set up a set up a passing lane to another teammate closer to the basket and use his ability to whip the ball down court so you can get into scoring range quickly. Okay, the Japanese national team. Uh, the defense moves really quickly now, but with what I call a spin move, um, while you're dribbling down the court, and now these players are now the, the computer players are fast enough to stay with you step for step. Now to get around them to avoid charging them, you would circle away from them with the joystick. Meaning, if you're going uh, in a straight line, you would whip the joystick down and then whip it around in like a half circle with the end up, you end up doing a diagonal move towards the basket. Usually that'll get you free long enough to where you can drive to the basket or you can get open for a jump shot. Um, also, now the white haired player on this team, on your team, turns into what I call Michael Jordan because now he moves with ridiculous speed he can blow right by the defense before they get a chance to set so the trick there is to get the ball to him and use his speed to get in the lane for dunks that way you can uh, get more and more time on the clock much more quickly and that gives you a really good bonus at the end of the game if you win okay the u.s national team this is where i stopped because i lost the game 98 to 93 um, I'm trying to remember. I think you start 15 points down. I think you're down 90, 98 to 73 or something like that. Um, or it's 98 to 78, something like that. But you have to basically score uh, 99 points to beat this team. But I lost 98-93. Um, the defense is really hard. Now they're playing a 1-3-1, which means one player is in the front court uh, and he comes out to guard your player. The other four players are sitting back in the lane, three abreast, then one player behind them. So that means that you have to really work to get uh, open shots. Uh, your best bet is to draw the defense down uh, to where your player is by dribbling into the front court near the bottom of the screen. Then you just stop there for a second while still pressing the dribble button. That's important because if you stop dribbling, and they, you stand there and you move, and then you hit the dribble button again, they call a double dribble, and that's a turnover. So you stop there for a second, then you do a spin move and move up towards the basket on the diagonal. Um, if you're fast enough, you can get a slam dunk every time. Uh, there is a Michael Jordan on your team too, on here too, but I didn't pay enough attention to know which player it was, and I should have. That's on me. So... Um, and like I said, there are there's the Russian national team, there's uh, the world champions, and I think there's like a super team you have to go through to beat the game, and then the game just keeps continuing and continuing until you uh, until you finally lose. It's just one of those games that just doesn't have an ending, even though I wish it did. And also, I have some tips for getting good at super basketball okay first one when you're on offense stay near the bottom of the screen if you play near the top of the screen your jump shots are much much slower 
that gives the defense time to come to you and block your shot. Operate in the lower halves, one third of the screen, uh, excuse me, one half to the one, the bottom one third of the screen, except when you're going in the lane for dunks. Okay, the last, the next one. <clears throat> when time is running out, don't despair. There are going to be times where you waste a bunch of time getting by getting your blo shot blocked or your passes stolen or turnovers, blah, blah, blah. If you're down under 10 seconds on the clock, try to go for quick shots from mid-range. If you have to heave a shot from half court, make sure you release your shot at the top of your jump, like with all other jump shots. There was a time in Super Basketball where I was really good at the three-point shot, but the one of the frustrating things about it is is that you take a shot from three quarter no, it was three quarter from three point range in the corner on the bottom very bottom of the screen all defense has to do is sit back by the lane and jump up and block the shot i mean that's about the cheesiest thing i've ever seen in a game especially a konami game and it's one of those where if you're going to take three pointers you make sure that your player is moving from left. When you go up for the shot, he's moving from left to right as he's going up. That'll reduce the chance of your shot getting blocked. So I think that's pretty much it for all the tips and tricks. But yeah, that's those are my strategies for uh, Super Basketball. I mean, I've always loved playing this game for as long as I've known it's existed since I was like 15 years old. It's one of the best basketball uh, arcade games out there. So, yeah. Uh, if you've got any tips, strategies, suggestions, things like that for Super Basketball, you know how to get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, let's move on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Tron. This movie is a... This movie, jeez. This video game is a direct tie-in to the movie. Both of these came out in 1982. Um... Matter of fact, I've got my Wikipedia page open for it, so I will just read from there. Uh, Tron is a coin-operated arcade video game manufactured and distributed by Bally Midway in 1982. The game consists of four sub-games inspired by the events of the Walt Disney production movie uh, Tron, released in the same year. The lead programmer for this game was Bill Adams. Tron consists of four sub-games based on events of, and characters in the movie. In general, the player controls Tron either in human form or piloting a vehicle using an eight-way joystick for movement, a trigger button on the stick to fire, and a rotary dial for aiming, which was a very unique control scheme, <laughs> but I continue. Uh, the goal of the game is to score points and advance through the game's 12 levels by competing each of the sub-games. Most of the 12 levels are named after programming languages. RPG, COBOL, Basic, Fortran, Snowball, PL1, Pascal, Algol, Assembly, OS, JCL, User. 
uh, this player, the game supports two players alternating. At the start of each level, the player must choose between four quadrants, each corresponding to one of the subgames. The subgame in each quadrant is not known to the player until it's selected. If the player fails the game and loses a life, he or she is taken back to the selection screen, and an icon representing that game is now visible. The subgames are as, fol as follows. The I.O. Tower. That stands for input-output. Um, the player must guide Tron to the flashing circle of an input-output tower within a set time limit while avoiding or destroying grid bugs. The game is based on the I.O. Tower scene in the film while adding the grid bugs as enemies, which were only brief briefly mentioned in the film. The MCP Cone. The player must break through a rotating shield wall protecting the MCP Cone and enter the cone without touching any of the shield blocks. This game is based on Tron's final battle with the MCP in the film, but changes the nature of the MCP's shield. And of course, the light cycles, which is the most popular uh, part of the game. In a player versus AI variant of the snake game concept, the player guides Tron's blue light cycle in an arena against one or more yellow opponents. The object is to force the enemy light cycles into walls and jet trails, while simultaneously avoiding them. This game is based on the light cycle arena sequence in the film, though the colors of the friendly and enemy characters are reversed. This is the only sub-game in Tron not to use the rotary dial, which is true. <laughs> I played Tron today, as a matter of fact. Uh, let's see. Battle tanks. The player must guide Tron's red battle tank through a maze and destroy all of the opposing blue enemy tanks by hitting each of them three times. The tank can warp to a random location in the maze by moving to, into a diamond in the center. In higher difficulty levels, the enemy tanks are replaced by red recognizers that are much faster and attempt to collide with the player instead of shooting at him or her. The game is not based on any particular scene, but is rather based on tank program elements including Clue's failed intrusion into the NCOM mainframe and the Space Paranoids game featured at the beginning of the film. Okay, let's see. Tron was awarded Coin-Operated Game of the Year by Electronic Games Magazine. Well deserved. Uh, the New York Times reported that 800 arcade cabinets were sold by 1982. The book The Naked Computer reported that Tron made $45 million by 1983. That's in 1983 money, mind you. Uh, in U.S. gamers' estimation, 10,000 cabinets were sold, and the game made more than $30 million of revenue by 1983. Uh, the world record high score for Tron was set in July 2011 by David Cruz of Brandon, Florida. Crew scored 14,745 points based on Twin Galaxies rules and settings for the game. And there was a sequel called Discs of Tron. Uh, that was an arcade game which was originally intended as a fifth segment of Tron, but was left out because the program wasn't finished in time. In it, the player engages in disc-throwing combat similar to the film sequence. Discs of Tron was not widely released, and unfortunately it didn't get as much uh, recognition as the original game. Oh, well, I, I was lucky enough to play it in 1983, but, but uh, like I said, it, I think there was only like one place I knew of that actually had it. My personal experiences, when this game hit in 1982, it caused a serious stir. No game before it looked like that. There was neon lighting in it. The, the joystick was internally lit. The controls were unique, the graphics were great, and the music was fantastic. People were all over it, always trying to get to the higher and higher levels and get higher and higher scores. 
there are times when I played this, especially after I saw the movie, because I saw the movie after I played the game. When I played when I played it after I saw the movie and read, actually I still have the the novel adaptation of this movie. Um, I felt like I was on the grid fighting for my life against the MCP. Uh, I still get that thrill when I play it today. As a matter of fact, I literally did play it today. <laughs> um, and that's the sign of a great, if not legendary, arcade game when it can still make you feel like you did when you played it when you were a teenager. Tron's certainly one of those games. So that's uh, Tron in a nutshell. Um, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, stories, you know how to get a hold of me. So let's move on to the final segment of this show, and that is Home Systems. There's no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm a game. Clear path! I'm going home! Home Systems. The ColecoVision. <laughs> yeah, this one was a... I like to say this was... They say it's a second generation video game system, and it is, but... To me, it was a quantum leap uh, in home video gaming. Because now you had a system that was very, it was very, very close to the arcade experience. The only thing that let it down, well, we'll talk about it. Okay, to read from Wikipedia again. Uh, the ColecoVision was Coleco Industries' second generation home video game console released in August 1982. The ColecoVision offered a closer experience to more pow powerful arcade game systems compared to competitors, competitors such as the Atari 2600 and the Atari 5200, along with the means to expand the system's basic hardware. The initial catalog of 12 games included Nintendo's Donkey Kong as a pack-in cartridge, Sega's graphically impressive Zaxxon, and some lesser-known arcade titles that found a larger audience on the console, such as Ladybug, Cosmic Avenger, and Venture. Approximately 145 titles in total were published as ROM cartridges for the system between 1982 and 1984. Coleco released a series of hardware add-ons and special controllers to expand the capabilities of the console. But alas, the Coleco vision was discontinued in 1985 when Coleco withdrew from the video game market. Okay, uh, by Christmas of 1982, the Coleco had sold 500,000 units. That's impressive just on just on its own merit. You gotta remember, this came out in August. <laughs> so that's a space of four months. Within four months, they sold half a million units. That's really impressive. Uh, they sold those in part on the strength of Donkey Kong and you know as its bundled game, which was a fantastic decision. Uh, the ColecoVision Donkey Kong was so close to the arcade Donkey Kong. There's only like one glaring difference between the two, but it made for such a great experience at home. You know, it was really, it was just a fantastic game. Uh, let's see, to continue. ColecoVision's main competitor was the less commercially successful Atari 5200, which I owned. <laughs> I made a big mistake. I should have asked for a ColecoVision. Uh, let's see, um, which used the same custom graphics and sound chips developed for the Atari 8-bit family of computers launched in 1979. 
Yeah. Uh, the ColecoVision was distributed by CBS Electronics outside of North America and was branded the CBS ColecoVision in Europe uh, when the console was released in July 1983, near, nearly one year after the North American release. Sales quickly passed 1 million units in early 1983 before the video game crash of 1983. By the beginning of 1984, quarterly sales of the ColecoVision had dramatically decreased. Over the next 18 months, the Coleco company ramped down its video game division, ultimately withdrawing from the video game market by the end of summer of 1985. The ColecoVision was officially discontinued by October 1985. Total sales of the ColecoVision are uncertain, but were ultimately in excess of 2 million units due to the console continuing to sell modestly up until its discontinuation the following year. The video game crash of 1983 has been cited as the main cause of the ColecoVisions being discontinued less than three years after its launch, which is a shame because this system had such... A, such promise, such future, it was ridiculous. Um, in 1983, Spectre Video announced the SV603 ColecoVision video game adapter for its SV318 computer. The company stated that the $70 project product product <laughs> the $70 product allowed users to enjoy the entire library of exciting ColecoVision video game cartridges. Wow. It started, yeah, that system started with such promise, but then the crash happened, and yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, let's see. Uh, my video, my experiences with this system were plentiful, as plentiful as one could have without actually owning the system. Um, by this time, in some late summer, fall 1982, I'm going to the video connection, which I talked about in episode 5. That's a mom-and-pop uh, video game slash uh, movie slash VCR rental uh, store in my neighborhood. Um, I'm going there regularly. I'm renting 2,600 games all of the time, and I'm hanging out in there as much as I possibly, possibly could. And that's what I said when I did Arcade Rundown for the video connection. Um... At the same time, I was constantly asking to play games on the Intellivision. Uh, and then when the ColecoVision came out in uh, August 82, um, everybody was coming in to play it um, because of the Donkey Kong port that came with the system. It was such a great adaptation of Donkey Kong that it's almost not even worth discussing. My favorite play game to play on the ColecoVision by far was Gateway to Apshai. Uh, that's an action RPG which was based off of the Apshai computer uh, RPG series. Um, that game fed into the other Jones I had developed by this time, which was Dungeons and Dragons. I had started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1981, and I would started buying the books and starting running my own games by 1982. So. Arcades and D&D were like my obsessions. If I found a game that fed both of them, like Gateway to Apshai for the ColecoVision or Treasure of Tarman for the Intellivision, I was in heaven. <laughs> you know. So um, every time I went into the video connection, I would ask to play this game. <laughs> you know, to the point where the uh, owners, which were a husband and wife, if they saw me coming in, 
you know, I knew this, this is how I knew to not go there as often, you know, to give them like a week or two week layoff. If I walked in there and either the husband or wife looked at me and said, are you going to rent something, Brian? And if I said yes, they'd be like, all right, come in. And if I said no, they'd be like, no, you got to leave because <laughs> they knew what I would do. They knew I would just ask to play a game on the ColecoVision for like two hours without renting anything and then I would just leave. <laughs> yeah, I got to, I was pretty annoying like that. Um, then I think in 1983, my cousin Tom got a ColecoVision for his birthday and um, every time that I went over, my, over his house with my mom because my mom and his mom were best friends, um... I was constantly playing uh, Donkey Kong on his uh, system. I was playing him. Um, he had other games, too, and I think... I'm trying to remember what other games he had. I think he had Space Avenger, but I I know he had, like, two or three other games, and I can't remember them. I think Space, Space Avenger was on uh, one of them, but I'm not sure. Um... In closing, this system, in its own way, was just important to video game history as the Atari 2600. It represented a quantum leap in what was possible, like the television did in 1979, and the Nintendo Entertainment System would do in 1985. Um, I just wish things had turned out differently. Again, the video game crash affected so many companies in so many ways, and they... It just, you know, I I would love to think what would have happened to the video gaming industry if the crash hadn't happened. Um, Coleco was definitely on their way. They had, quote-unquote, the killer system with the killer app, and people were constantly buying these things, and then they started making some decisions like the Atom Computer, which was something that came out in 1984, and it just failed miserably um or excuse me adam came out in 83 but it failed so badly and then you put the crash on top of that and yeah that was pretty much it for coleco um and not only that they made good video game adaptations for uh for the uh atari 2600 they made a decent zaxxon one they made a really good um other games they also were in charge of the donkey kong adaptation for the 2600 which of course was nowhere near as good as the ColecoVision, but it still was a better attempt it was a better attempt than atari's uh pac-man that's for sure but anyway i'm getting off on a rant and it's getting late so i think i better stop here okay so um if you guys you know any of you out there owned a ColecoVision, tell me what you know you know, tell me what you thought about the system. I thought it was a fantastic video game system, but yeah, the controllers were terrible. We all know that. I don't know what in television and Atari with their 5200 and the ColecoVision, I don't know what their developers were thinking, but they could have come up with better controllers, that's for sure. But either way, just get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, so that's episode 15. You know, I got it all in, so um, this should come. This should be recorded by. I want to say, this should be posted by next Saturday, the twenty fourth. So st you know, stay tuned for that. 
and hopefully it come and I get it out on time and you guys enjoy it. And let's see, just looking ahead to episode 16, uh, this is where I talk about the uh, sequel to Super Basketball, Double Dribble, and also my experiences with this game, and uh, also a top 10s for 1986, funnily enough, because Double Dribble came out in 86. So we've got a lot to uh, look forward to with episode 16, so I hope you tune in. So until next time, this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email at arcadeaddictryan, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast.